You're listening to Learning with Rishad. My name is Rishad Usmani. I'm a physician, angel investor, and founder of One Fail Startup. On this podcast, I talk about healthcare, investing, life, and everything in between. Today's guest is David Joe from On Deck Angels. He has an inquisitive, curious, and intelligent mind. We talk about his childhood, market risk, what makes the best VCs, deal flow, and decision making. I hope you guys enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Hi, David. Thanks so much for being here today. To get started, let's talk about your childhood. I believe our childhood shapes us to an extent, whether we like it or not. Generally, there are things we learn from our childhood that help us, and there are some things we have to unlearn from our childhood to be successful. Talk to me about your childhood, and if you could frame it in the way of what are some things you've carried and what are some things you've had to let go of. That's a great question. Actually, it's funny because I was recently thinking about this question in the scope of a blog post. Uh, so this is a very prescient question. Um, I forget who says this, um, but I want to say someone at Benchmark or someone at Sequoia said this, and I, I, I forgive me for the attribution. I think your listeners can probably like follow up on that. But um, effectively, the quote is: "In life, when you're growing in life, there are you either run away from your past or you embrace your past, right? They're either like you know where your your trajectory, where you're going, is either a product of you escaping." Uh, a past or or running towards it. And I'm not saying like, it's it's not polarizing, right? It's not like you can only do one or the other. There are different emotions. Like sometimes like there's some things that my parents did really well. And I'm like, I just want to do that for like, I don't have children right now, but like, I want to do that for my children in the future. There are other things in terms of upbringing that I'm like, you know, I, I desire something different, right? And they came with cultural values that obviously me being born in the US, like it was a different set of cultural values. Um, one of the things, and there are like many things on top of that, right? But one of the things is, so my dad's like a serial entrepreneur. Um, so he kind of like grew up bread and butter. He was like, you know what? I, I love building businesses. He built in the manufacturing, the logistical and supply chain space, which was to me, like as a kid, like very unsexy, but he'd bring me on these business trips and he'd teach me the the the, the tricks and the the ropes and everything else. Um, and I really hated it. Like, like as a, as a six or seven and all the way this, uh, uh, like, like throughout my entire life, right? I just like really disliked it. And in high school, I almost made it my vendetta that I was going to pick any career except for entrepreneurship. Um, and so like, you know, along the way, like, um, over like in, in grade school, became a competitive swimmer, really enjoyed that, became a competitive artist and all these things, um, that were like very different from, um, what my, what my dad wanted me to do, he kind of wanted me to follow in his footsteps and all that, which is funny where I am now, because obviously, you know, the punchline already, as if for everyone who's listening to this, but I really want to escape this, but I really love competition, right? I love the fact that I competed with others, friendly competition, where we'd all grow better in the process, because we all had goals that were moving and only got better. Like if, if my competitor was like, you know, I won against him or her today. And then the next day, like, you know, or next week or next month, they beat me. It's like, this is drive to prove yourself, right? And we always like loved each other. It's the same true for swimming. And I saw some regular suspects in, in the art circuits as well, where I was like, I, I, I have so much respect for what they do and I want to be better than them, right? And there's so much of that. Um, so in a, in a way I was groomed to have ambitions and skill sets that would have lent well to the world of entrepreneurship in the future, like in, in the venture world as well. That said, it, it, it now it's funny because now that I start investing, I, I say I'm allergic to competition. Um, so that's a past in a bit I'm, I'm kind of running away from. Um, but um, to answer your question, 
as I got into college and ended up getting into entrepreneurship and all that kind of stuff, um, what really happened was I stumbled across that. Like I, I in my mind, I was like, I'm not going to take any entrepreneurship classes. I'm not going to take any business classes. Um, and eventually I ended up taking it. Spoiler alert. Um, but in the beginning, it was, I'm just going to do cool things with cool people and I will see where that lands. And in some, it effectively landed me in, like I went to school in Berkeley. So whether I liked it or not, this was a school designed for entrepreneurship, so to speak. Um, and so by osmosis, I eventually fell into that world, but it was initial like running away from that, that led me to that. On the flip side, I also mentioned now that I'm allergic to competition, which I realized early on in my college days that even though I was like, really good in some things, right? Like really, really good. I put, let me say like, top decile, maybe even top percentile on some things. But in the world of venture, you really not only have to be top percentile, you have to be like top 0.01%. And there were some things I just knew because I've seen people who are better than me that I knew I was not going to be like the top one in the world. I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be the Albert Einstein or the Stephen Hawking of the world effectively, right? And And so I like early on one of my mentors in my life told me there in your journey there's two risks you can take um and this might be a more long-winded version of, of your uh, the question you asked right you can either take market risk or you can take execution risk and i think most people when they pursue careers they pursue execution risk right people go into consulting and banking and all these kind of things there are people who can do it better than you but you're like you're at a point where you want that you're you're hustling, you want to do it better than them, but it's hard to beat someone who has like 20 years in the industry and all that kind of stuff. That said, as a young person, which is true for like the crypto markets right now or the generative AI markets and these founders that are coming out of that, it's so much easier to bet on market risk because you are at an equal playing field versus everyone else in the industry. Um, and so why I say I'm allergic to competition and, you know, this is strongly informs my investment thesis is I, I love people who are building in non-obvious, unsexy things that are just like, you know, underestimated right and um and i think that that lends itself well to to being different um in, in the long run in the next decade and i think it's so much easier to be different or tell share how you are different than it is to say that you are better um so i'm gonna pause there but long-winded answer to your question thanks for that answer i have a million questions as always about art swimming why berkeley how did you know that you would not be the 0.01 vc before we get into all of those, when you say market risk, does that mean that we should pick markets that are growing or did I, am I misunderstanding that? So there are two ways you can pick. Um, and this is something I often advise founders in terms of like go-to-market channels and all that as well. You can pick up and coming uh, channels, markets, so to speak, um, that are growing, but are smaller in, in the magnitude of things. Um and or you can pick markets that are legacy, super big, but underestimated. Um, and so there are two ways to go about that, right? And it's it's it, it changes over time. Like today's market that's like what's up and coming versus like legacy and, and antiquated is different from if you were to ask me that same question two, three, four, five years from now. Um, and so that's how I think about it, right? Um, I am also of the belief where if like, you know, if thing, like, things are overhyped, it's probably not a good time to be investing into the market, so to speak, um, or like in, in that specific sector. Um, but I am bullish when people are bearish and bearish when people are bullish, right? Um, so I, currently there's certain trends I think are overhyped, I'm not saying that they don't have any use cases, right? Um, but I just like shied away from a lot of investments, like, you know, in 2017 and all from the crypto side of things or like 2020, 2021. Um, but now 
um, I'm looking more into like the different use cases, the actual applications that connect not, not just web two to web three, but web two to web 2.5 and maybe 2.5 to three. Right. Um, and right now we see a lot of hype around generative AI and I love, I, I've been using chat GPT and Dolly, like no one's business. Right. But, um, I do think a lot of applications are spinning up right now is, is forcing a solution on a problem rather than finding a problem and then building a solution based on that problem. The value of creative work with chat GPT as a good segue into newsletters is interesting. <laughs> I just preempted your question for you. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, the question I wanted to ask is what markets do you see as growing over the next few years with AI becoming a commodity? Do you agree with that statement? AI is a commodity now. And if AI's so, great. yeah. What, what markets are you betting on? Yeah. Um, it's really interesting. Um, I've always been a fan of communications and the linguistics and the English or just language in general. Um, that's that I am ill-equipped to speak a million different languages, but I, I've always been fascinated by that. I've been fascinated by friends and, and people who could speak multiple languages. Um, and there was a tweet I saw on, on Twitter. I forget who said this. Uh, I'm sure you could probably link it in the show notes somewhere. Uh, but they said the, the new hot like coding language is English. Uh, the hottest coding language is English. Uh, and this is a couple of days ago, at least as of when we're recording this. Um, so I'm sure you can find it somewhere. But I think that's really true, right? Um, going to the point of AI becoming a commodity, in the past decade, in the past two decades, we've seen so much of engineering talent. Like, you know, there was more demand for engineers than there were for any other position, right? And the main reason for that is, you know, from the 2000s to 2008 and all that, it was really hard to build a website. It was really hard to build infrastructure. It was really hard to build a server, a cloud, all these kind of things, right? And, and so that's why there was a huge demand for, for engineers out there, um, and rightly so. In the incoming decade where we have so much, a plethora of like AI tools out there, and some are more hyped than others, but that we have strong backbones, whether it's open AI or uh, Google DeepMind or MidJourney or, you know, Anthropic recently raised like, uh, I think on a $5 billion valuation as well, um, that there's so many of these tools that are underlying out there that people don't need to know how to code anymore. People, what people need to know is they need to know how to train models. They need to put in the right inputs for that. And so I think curation of information and, you know, is, is so much more important and because of that, I actually think data science or data analytics is actually going to be like the next hottest job for the next like decade or so, rather than, um, you know, uh, engineering per se. Um, and because of that, industries that are, have data that is siloed in different corners of the world or on offline methods are going to be really hot over the next few years because there's going to be an urge to curate and start uh, like amalgamating a lot of this data in order to provide better solutions. Um, and there are tons of industries that kind of cover those bases. You can think of healthcare, you can think of like, you know, the supply chain industry, you can think of like, you know, um, GovTech is also something that is, it, it would be interesting as well. Uh, that said, I, as I mentioned, I think in our pre-chat, like I, I spend most of my time in the consumer space and there are, um, there are certain things. And like, you know, one of my friends, he, he runs this I don't even know if I can mention his name without his permission, but there, he runs this company that's, that's AI before like this generative AI came to be. And one of the cool things is he emotions and curiosity is still a common theme. So if, like how I think about it in the consumer space is really what is the 
what is the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Starting from physiological needs all the way to like self-actualization. And in, in, in a boom market, everyone moves towards like the top of it, right? Everyone feels a little bit more wealthy. Everyone's like, I can do great, great things. I'm going to think about being get, getting like a million subscribers on YouTube or whatever it is, right? And so everyone moves towards this like self-actualization side of things. But in down market, which is where we are right now, everyone feels a little poor. Their assets have really fallen. So they're like, they, they move lower on the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And in terms of markets, at least in the consumer space that I'm excited about are as we move to the lower rungs of, of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, at least for, for, for for a lot of the world um how can we provide solutions for for where their needs are at that is a, a perfect answer i would say david let's go back to you being an artist talk to me about what is your form of art and is the future at that point that you will be an artist so i, I don't think we talked about this but i paint abstract acrylic on canvas my relationship with art is very tenuous it's almost like an addiction when I do it, the world doesn't exist. And I don't I don't enjoy the process of painting. It's almost like I have to do it when I get the urge. Is that something you feel as well about art? And just tell me more about your journey as an artist and how you saw that progressing uh, when you were uh, full into it. Yeah, um, so my journey into art, once again, so, one of the things I'll, I'll like preface by saying before I talk about the art piece, well, preface by saying, um, there are like two kinds of founders out there. Um, there are folks who are passionate and there are folks who are obsessed. Um, and I think oftentimes like people talk a lot about founder passion and like passion is a good proxy for grit and all that. Right. But in my opinion, and I think this is echoed, I actually, uh, like heard this from, um, I think he calls it desire, but Thomas Keller, who who runs like the French Laundry and and a lot of these like amazing restaurants in the world, um, he uh so he, he calls it desire, right? He doesn't call it obsession, right? Passion is something that you can walk in one day. It's like oh, I'm passionate. It's a it's a hobby thing, right? You can it, it keeps you up during the day. It's like hey, you can do this on the weekends. You can do this when you're not busy. Like I'm passionate about rock climbing. I'm passionate about X Y Z things, right? Passionate about like pottery and all that. But they're fleeting in nature. They're almost like you know like cravings like you, like I ever so often have like ice cream cravings and like I just need to eat a pint of ice cream and after that I'm like I don't feel like touching ice cream ever again right and that's like passion in my opinion right and what is more important is Thomas Keller calls it desire I call it obsession which is not what keeps you up during the day or not what you're excited about like waking up and, and doing but what keeps you up at night like you will wake up like in a 2 a.m sweat and be like oh my god like what went wrong with this or like I'm thinking about this and this happens or like at least for me my sleep schedule is a little bit off because there are certain things I get obsessed about and I wake up in the middle of the night and I I don't know if like I assume this is audio but if for any video I have this notebook always next to me not only here but I have another one next to my bed where I just wake up and start to like start to journal anyway what is uh sorry to interrupt it is video as well um what is in that notebook in the past seven days if you know if you can share what's your obsession yeah, right um now? so let's see um what have I this is this is a great way to like you know if anyone's like building products in this industry like I'd be really interested um event planning that's one thing so I, I like to spend a lot of time so the, uh one of the journal entries actually like last last night was like signs of a great event right um signs of a great event they're threefold right in my opinion one um, there are reasons for people to catch up with after and they've grown from the experience. And I, 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 think, I think about events a lot on, on the wavelength of stories, right? There should be plots, there should be character development, there should be an inciting incident where people want to go to an event, right? And so that's like character development. The audience grows, like they come out as a different person as they uh, compared to what the person they walked in with. The second thing is level of exclusivity. I'm not saying that you should only have like, you should, everyone should pay like $10,000 in terms of this exclusivity kind of thing, but 
even if it's temporary, making them feel like they're part of a larger cause just within that group of audience than them, their, themselves, right? One of the things, actually this great paper, which I highly recommend people to check out is this paper by George Lowenstein, 1994. It's called The Psychology of Curiosity. And in it, he details the five triggers of curiosity, right? It ranges from questions and riddles to information known to others to um, access to information known to others to unknown resolutions and all these kind of things, right? Highly recommend, I think it's like 15, 20 pages, super quick read. Um, but um, like the exclusivity portion of it is what like what word of mouth ends up becoming, right? And so there's like, that's information known to others, right? So people want to know about it. Like word of mouth happens there. People think about it in the wavelength, like candy versus the meal, how people meal, which is like how people think about things versus how people talk about things are very different. And I like recently wrote a blog post on this as well, which is like candy versus the meal, which is like your pitch deck, your complete business is the meal. It's like, that's how people think about it. Your business model, how you're getting traction, how much are you raising, everything that's on the pitch deck. That's the meal, right? The thing is when people actually talk about your pitch to like their fellow partners or to other investors and to share the deal they don't talk through like slides one through ten um they talk about something different right they talk about like, oh my god i learned something from reshot and it was like i just it just blew my mind right a couple of examples of like candies that i've heard is like you know um uh like you know I, I think i wrote this in this blog post as well when i first jumped into venture there was a guy who was like hey you know i'm i'm i love learning so much that i used to walk he lives in he used to he grew up in this village outside of cairo egypt and he's like i used to walk from my village to that to cairo 10 hours one way every week right so 20 hours uh, two ways right and i would go to their library i would download every single stanford research paper i'd print them all out and i'd bring a fat stack of, of Stanford research papers, I'm going to bring it back. And I just like spent the week reading it. And he got like really big into like biotech and AI and at that time and all that. And, and I was like, this is awesome. Like, th like, this is a level of grit that I would like, I, even now I'm talking about it live with your audience and all that. But does that, it's not indicative of the business. Like it, it doesn't tell you anything about what he's actually building. Right. But that's what people love talking about. And that's how it spreads to other folks. And similarly, if you're building a product, right, you want people to there's some things that you want people to talk about. You need to like elicit that in either surprises or suspense, right? I can go more on that. But anyways, the reason I bring up all that because your original question is like, how do I get into art? Is I had a deep desire. I had like, I was obsessed. Um, in kindergarten, um, I was in a beautiful little kindergarten out here in the Bay Area. And we, had, uh, one of my fellow classmates was an incredible artist at like, I think it was like five, four, four or five years old. Um, and she was really good for like someone her age. And what pissed me off, not what was the fact, not the fact that she was really good and she would always get the, the, uh, the praise from the class and all that was the fact that there was one day she told me, she was like, David, you really suck. You should stop drawing stick figures. And I was like, I've just, I've got to prove her wrong. Like, it's not even like I like art or anything. I've just, I've got to prove her wrong that I can do it. So I, like, I went home that day. I told my parents like, Hey, you know what? I, I need to sign for uh, art classes I just need to sign up for it and that got me into the world of art because it was like I've I've got to prove her wrong right and eventually like uh I ended up getting first in the class in this like little small art contest within our class which is like of, of 20 folks um but then I fell in love with it because the more accolades you build and the same thing is true for swimming I used to hate swimming by the way but uh but then the more like uh achievements you get the more you like something because it's like external validation and all that kind of stuff right and that was true as a as a kid um 
which is why like giving the gold star gold sticker to 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 students who do well is such an encouraging thing for people to actually pursue certain paths anyways um i fell in love with art ended up doing a bunch of art competitions because i started like building a level of like detail towards it and how that like transpires to today is at the end of the day even for my blog you mentioned my newsletter and my blog right um i'm an artist but i differentiate that with being a designer i think as a founder you should be a designer as like a content creator you can choose to be a designer or an artist right the difference between that is art is created from the person themselves like Rishad you mentioned you do abstract art like you have like you feel compelled to pull put certain things on canvas it's not like you know it's not for someone else it could be for like maybe for your parents or for family or for someone right but initially it always starts from yourself you're like I really want to put this on a canvas and I just have to do it right that's what an artist does and that's same thing for my blog right I don't write for any particular audience I in fact like from the thesis of my blog, I started with like, hey, you know what? I'm going to write for one person alone because one person who is guaranteed to love my blog is so much better than having 10,000 people who kind of care for my blog, right? And the one person I write for is the person I was yesterday. So I'm going to share information that I learned today that I know the person I was yesterday is absolutely going to love. And over time, I guess other people ended up falling in love with it as well. Um, but really that's where the newsletter started. So I'm an artist, right? Whereas a founder should be like, or like, you know, somebody creating for others should be like a designer. You are creating something with the purpose that other people should like it. It's less about self-expression, but more about like other people's expression, how they think about life. So anyways, I'm going to pause there. Yeah, I think uh, the, the I completely agree with the differentiation between passion and obsession. And it's not even I enjoy painting. I just have to do it. Um, or I just get very anxious. Let's go back to the comment you made where you saw something in you that led you to believe that you will not be one of the 0.01% top VCs. What was that something you saw? And what would it take? And you might answer this question with um, what, what was that something you saw? But what would it take for you to change your belief on that? So it was less of like, I wouldn't become a top 0.01% VC. Um, there were certain things that other people were really good at already that had honed with decades of experience and thought leadership. Um, like, for example, like I, I saw pretty early on after like Doug Leone at Sequoia did a couple talks publicly, shared a couple of insights. I was like, I cannot, as of where I am today, or like then, I, I cannot ask questions like Doug Leone asks. Like one thing he actually shared publicly, which I'm happy to share, like uh, I'm kind of like redirecting folks to different resources, which I, I think they're, they're, they're often great at that as well, is Doug went on 20 BC, Harry Stebbings 20 BC at one point in time. Um, and he shared this question, which was um, sh like figuring out like a founder's strengths and weaknesses without actually asking them like, hey, what are your strengths, what are your weaknesses? And the question he asks is, two parts. One, do you have a sibling, right? And if you don't have a sibling, it's like, okay, do you have a, like a best friend? Do you have a roommate? Do you have a spouse? Do you have whatever it is, right? Um, and I, once you say yes to one of those questions, he goes like, how would you describe, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but how would you describe that person in three adjectives? Hmm. Um, and it's like, I always was curious, like, why would you ask that in the first like yeah. meeting? You only have so much time to talk about things in, in the first meeting. But the reason he explains it is when people describe someone else for example if i say rishad is like a great content creator is a great like interviewer right in my mind by definition i feel like i'm less of an interviewer than you are right it, it's a comparative statement if i say rishad is curious interesting i i believe i like at least internally like not saying that you're like 
it, it could be like you're the best interviewer in the world but as of the moment I just feel like I'm a worse interviewer than you are if I say like if I were to describe you as that right um and and so it's a great way for founders to reveal what they think they're lesser at better at compared to the people who are they are close or uh, closely associated with and it's a great way of asking strengths and weaknesses which i've, I've adopted a little bit here and there for, for questions that i've asked founders um but i realized early on i was like oh my god like these are things that i've never even thought about right it's it's one thing to think about it and like just like struggle at finding the solution for it but it's like i've never even thought about it right and so given that going back to the execution risk there were certain things that i was just like i like I would, I would take so much longer to build up to that point. And they have like 30, 40 years of a head start compared to me. I'm not saying that it can't be that one day. Like there's always the thing like, you know, um, Jeff Bezos once said like, Hey, if everyone has a three-year time horizon, like I'll have a five-year, seven-year, whatever time horizon. Right. And then I'll be the last one laughing because everyone else will retire in three years. And I'll be like, I'm still out in like eight years and I'm still kicking it. And like, it's survivorship, like, you know, yeah. at that point. And so there's a world of that. I'm not saying that I will never become the plot 0.101% kind of like of, of VCs or founders or whatever it is out there, right? Or for me, it was like, you know, art and and, and swimming. Like I, I I knew I was decent like in swimming, but given my competition days, like I knew I was not as good as like Michael Phelps per se, right? Like yeah. I knew I just like, it would take me much longer to get there where sometimes you need a little bit of innate talent and innate desire that you start earlier. Like I started, I, I actually think I started swimming a bit late, like competitive swimming a bit late compared to everyone else. Um, so anyways, there was that. And I was like, okay, you know what? I won't compete where people are great at, but I will compete in areas where one, I am personally very, very fascinated by, right? Like I, like I will, like I will wake up in the middle of the night just to write about these things. Like I mentioned events, um, you asked a couple others. I talk about growth hacks. I talk about, um, the LP industry. I talk about how to podcast. Um, like, you know, I also like, I love cooking as well. And I had this like recipe I made up in my mind called like the chicken roulade recipe. And I like would mix it a pumpkin soup and all that. Anyways, I think about these random things in the middle of the night. Right. But I have like an innate, and this is true for founders as well. Like you have to have an innate curiosity where you're just going to like wake up in the middle of the night thinking about that's one, right. That's the first like litmus test to like, if you have the potential to be a 0.01%. The second thing is what is like, play to you but work to everyone else right what is exciting to me like i like i don't know if i ever want to make a living out of hosting events but i do enjoy hosting events don't get me wrong right and i wake up in the middle of thinking about it and most people just take events for granted they're like oh i'm just gonna do a fireside chat and then things are gonna happen right or i i i, I do a like a networking event i do a happy hour and people are gonna show up and i just have i don't have to do too much to about it right but i think very intentionally about what creates like a great event thesis and how what what the user experience is like I enjoy that, right? Am I the best one in the world right now? In the world right now, maybe not. I have friends who are just like they think on different wavelengths, but it's also collaborating with them. You're the average of the five people you hang out with, right? So working with them, building these like unique experiences where people walk out and like I've never had this experience ever before in the events kind of analogy. Um, so not saying I won't become the 0.01% of of whatever, right? But saying that where do I have a unique place where I can grow faster than others. And it's a function of personal entertainment, enjoyment, drive. So for example, like needing to prove my, my, my classmate wrong that I was like not bad at drawing stick people, right? Um, and as a function of, um, I think, Balaji Srinivasan as well as Chris Dixon called the idea maze. Um, things are obvious in hindsight, not as obvious in foresight. And if you were to look back in your life, what skills, relationships, you know, experiences have you built up that is unique to you that is either really hard to replicate or 
because of its unique path, almost impossible to replicate. Um, and that's the unique edge and where you have a unique disposition to hopefully one day become the 0.01%. Going back to the gold star analogy and collecting accolades, Magnus Carlsen re recently said that fighting for the world championship is mm -hmm. better than being the world champion. Talk to me a bit about your end goal. And I'd like you to tie it in with your upbringing and childhood, where it sounds like you're moving around a lot. And I was the same way. I think I had 19 or 17 schools by the time I finished high school. Mm -hmm. I find my home is in moving and chasing new goals. and have a very hard time being comfortable with stability. Are you the same way? Where is home for you and what motivates you? That's a great question, by the way. Um, there are certain things um, that are comfortable to me. Like, you know, the, 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 a human's worst enemy is, is comfort, right? Because then you become lethargic and you're, you regress to your lowest denominator, right? Skills all atrophy over time. If you don't practice them, they, they only become worse. Um, so first part of the question was goal. Second part of the question was like, where am I comfortable? Where am I like uncomfortable, so to speak? Yeah. Um, I, so it's, it's funny, like I recently put together like a personal career manifesto just to help me have like a focus for, for where I want to go. Um, and, and really it comes down to like, when it, when it comes to like com comfort and uncomfortability, I really beat myself up over the fact that I didn't learn anything new in a given day. Like, so I meditate in the morning, I meditate at night. Um, in the morning, I kind of like, it's 10 minutes long each, right? It's not like crazy, but it's like, in the beginning, it's like, hey, what would my ideal day look like given my schedule? And how can I set myself up to have the ideal day, right? Um, for example, like I meditated this morning. I was like, you know what? I'm going on Rishad's podcast today. Um, how can I make sure I bring my A game, right? And how do I set myself up to, to do that? And I'm gonna be honest, like, I, I don't know if this is true for other people who show up on podcasts. I just did like 20 burpees before this, this thing started. And I was yeah. like, okay, I need to get my blood pumping in order to like bring my A game here. Right. And so those, these, those are things you set up for that. On the flip side, at the very end of the day, I kind of reflect at the day. It's like, what could I have done better? What can I have like, you know, what did I learn from today? Right. Um, and it's just like intense visualization of what actually happened and playing out scenarios of what I could have done otherwise. Um, and one of the things that I absolutely hate that like boils my blood at the very end of the day when I meditate is holy frick, I didn't learn anything new today. Like I didn't talk to anyone. I didn't read anything that I was like inspired by, right? Um, and I, I was left at a net neutral ground of like, I don't feel more inspired. I don't feel less inspired. It just feels like I'm, 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 I'm slogging through life. And one of the questions I actually ask myself, not daily, but probably monthly, quarterly, whatever it is, um, not, not any specific cadence is, was the David from, let's say a month ago, laughably stupid? Like, could I look back at like a month ago, like David, like, you know, let's say like January 1st of this year, can I look back and be like, damn, David made some like dumb, did, did some dumb things. And I'm just like, like, I would never make those mistakes again. But if I think yesterday or the month before or the quarter before David is just like absolutely dumb, I know I've grown a lot in that span of time. Right. Like it's hard to measure growth. Like, and everyone can say you grow 1% every single day. And that means like whatever, like uh, uh, growth after a year or so. Right. But it's so hard to measure. Like, how am I actually growing 1% a day? Right. Am I just like writing a new idea down? If I'm talking to 
people? What does that actually mean? But it's so much more obvious in hindsight, which is why I measure it in hindsight. So the uncomfortability is like, I look back at, you know, David from a month ago and I'm like, I could have like David from a month ago can imagine David I am today. And that's bad because if I can predict where David is going to go, I clearly haven't taken enough risk. Like, really haven't made enough mistakes to get there i'm also younger like i don't have no whiskers in my beard to say like you know like i'm uh i i i, I like you know wisdom so to speak but i i can hustle right and i like i it, it, it pains me to know that i can predictably say from a month ago that i could see where david is today um and that's how i think about it. that's that's uncomfortable to me right that might be comfort to everyone else but that's how i think about it right and i always love to learn every conversation i have is like i like to ask questions about it doesn't have to be about, about venture right it could be about literally anything else right um like recently i learned uh, i went to an omakase restaurant and um effectively like what i asked the chef like how do you make really good dashi and he's like hey you put in the bonito flakes but as soon as you put in the bonito flakes you have to turn off the fire right the water has to stop boiling and you let it steep in there for at most like three minutes right and i'm like interesting because every time i make dashi it's like it's super fishy it's super smoky flavor and all that and i'm like i just it doesn't taste like the restaurant quality and like he taught me that. i was like oh my this is really cool and so i jotted that, that that those notes down as well um and so that's how i think about uncomfortability um in terms of goal that's a hindsight right and then there's foresight goal is like foresight um in my mind there's two things right i think everyone in life should have both a selfless goal and a selfish goal so selfless goals is what you tell PR media, your family over at uh, like, you know, holidays and you're like, Hey, and this is how awesome things I've done. All the awesome things I've done. This is what you want to write. This is what you want to have in your epitaph, right? You know, um, Rishad died like as a great father, I died as like an entrepreneur, as a, an investor who believed in others, all these kind of things, right? Um, that's your selfless goal, right? That's what you tell people. That's going to help get you going on your best days. Like it's going to really inspire you wake up on Monday, you're like, all right, I'm, I'm ready to tackle this, right? Um, then there's a selfish goal. When I think that's really important, because like, I ask, actually, I actually ask founders this, like, what drives you? Like, why are you building this business? Um, are you trying to put dinner on the dinner table, right? Are you trying to prove like a childhood friend wrong, right? Like, why are you actually doing this? And this is not something you put in the pitch deck, but I need to know what their innate reason and their innate drive is, right? And the reason I ask for that and let me know if I'm cutting out, by the way. But like the reason I ask for that is the selfish goal is going to keep you going on your worst days. Like building a, a startup is freaking tough. Building a venture fund is freaking tough, right? Um, you're going to fail a lot. You're going to get a lot of no's. You're going to get rejected a lot. And because of that, days and weeks are going to really suck. And your selfless goal is, goal is going to keep you going on your best days. Your selfish goal is going to remind you why you continue to stick around and do this. Even for myself, like, you know, selfish versus selfless goals. Um, selfless, you know, I, I put kind of like, I want to put a billion smiles out there in the world, which is either directly or indirectly and help people go from the lower rungs of this, like the, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs to the higher rungs of self-actualization to self-esteem and all that kind of stuff. Um, there are many ways to do that, right? Like I can do it as an investor by backing founders who are able to be boots on the ground and do that, like, you know, effectively an extension of, of, of my help towards them. I can do that by backing fund managers. Um, where they back founders and those founders end up doing a lot as well. Um, that's a selfless goal, right? The selfish goal is, man, I, I, I want to make my parents proud. Like I want, I want to, I want to be, I want to make sure that the David they gave birth to is someone that they're, they're proud of and that motivates them uh, to be like, you know, that just like gives them so much comfort and, and like joy and pride in being my parent.
the one question I've been uh, meaning to ask you all throughout this podcast, how do you look at investing in life in terms of, is it a single player game or a multiplayer game? The obvious answer is that it's a multiplayer game. But a couple of people like Naval Ravikant and Warren Buffett have come out to say investing in particular is a single player game. What is your view on life and investing? And is it a multiplayer game or a single player game? It's it's a, it's a great thought exercise, in my opinion. Um, there are many different angles in which you can take it, right? Um, do you believe in a zero-sum world or a positive-sum world? And I think as an investor, I would want to like differentiate it a little bit, like make it a bit more nuanced, right? There are different kinds of investors out there in the world. Like an angel investor investing like a five to 10K check or a 25K check is very different from an investor who writes like a million or $3 million check, right? And it's also a function of stage as well. Um, in the early stages, and if you are not obsessed about ownership targets for whatever reason, um, it's a positive sum game. Like you investing in a company is not going to reasonably squeeze out anyone else. Like me investing a 25K check in a, uh, in a company is not going to be like, oh my God, like, you know, um, like I'm going to squeeze out like the Sequoias or Benchmarks or whatever other investors out there in the world. In fact, like founders love having small check writers um, because oftentimes smaller check writers punch above their weight class. Their check size to helpfulness ratio is like off the charts, right? They write a small check, but they provide like a million dollars in value kind of thing. Um, that said, as you grow as an investor, as you professionalize as an investor, you become a fiduciary to other people that is not your own capital, right? You're no longer investing out of your own pocket, but you are managing other people's money. And when you are managing other people's money, you become responsible for their capital gains and their growth as well. And they have certain expectations of like, you know, returns, right? And and because they have those expectations, they're going to in, like move you in the direction of the fact that you should write larger checks. Ownership targets actually matter because owning like, you know, Facebook's 1% of Facebook on Facebook's exit is much better than owning like 0.00005% kind of thing, right? Um, the same thing is true. Like, you know, it, it, like, uh, like 10%, if you maintain an ownership target of 10%, when you go through a hundred million dollar exit, you get a $10 million kind of like you know, you get $10 million back. If you go through a billion dollar exit, you get $100 million back and all that, right? But as an angel investor, like the economics really don't matter nearly as much. Your goal, I mean, at least my goal is, is to learn and to help the founders um, as much as I can and effectively like, build track record over time, right? But I'm not managing other people's money. So I don't have, I don't feel compelled to like make investment decisions based on the fact that I need a certain level of return. Um, and it's also hard to like underwrite some of the risk at the early stage as well. And so to your question, if is it like a single player versus multiplayer game? It's multiplayer when you're like small check early stages because everyone's really collaborative, right? Everyone's trying to help each other. Everyone grows with each other. Everyone's the protagonist of their own story trying to help others. Um, and then when you get into the later stages, when you get into like the, the stage in which there are lead investors and lead investors, well, they, usually there aren't any co-leads. It's like one lead investor and they either take up the majority of the round or all of the round kind of thing. And because of that, it becomes more single player because you being on someone's cap table means someone else cannot be on that person's cap table. Um, at least those are my thoughts on that. That makes sense. Do you feel, David, it's harder to get access to great deals or to recognize them when you're presented with them? That's a good question. When I started off, um, 
I mean, when it started off, it was both, right? Um, there is a study that was, I believe, Founder Collective did this in like 2020 or 2021. It's on Medium, one of their Medium articles, where they did a bunch of research and they found that the 30 most valuable companies in the world raised half as much money and were worth four times as much as the 30 most funded companies in the world. And it goes to say, like, you know, whether you hear about like Airbnb story when they started or Instacart, when they tried to get in YC and they just couldn't get in YC kind of thing. Um, and I think they, they submitted to their YC application twice or just like so many others where it was just super underestimated. Like when Twitch, uh, you know, Twitch is Twitch what it is today, but sort of as Justin TV where he just wanted to live stream his own life. Right. And and even more so, like it, it, for for Floodgate, one of the best like seed stage firms out there in the world, I believe um, Mike Maples mentioned this publicly at some point, but like 70% of their portfolio go through pivots. And so it's so hard, going back to the original question, it's so hard to tell in foresight if a startup is going to do great. Um, and obviously what great is in myopic nature um, is oftentimes when some Sequoia leads the round or they have like impressive traction of like initial like 500% month, I might be exaggerating this, but 500% month of our month growth after they've hit like 10K users or something, right? Um, and just, it might seem obvious and forced and it might feel like you need to get into these rounds and you need to get get picked by the founders. But I actually think it's, it's harder to pick, right? It's harder to bet where it's non-obvious and people are saying this might not be a good idea. Um, and one of the great ways to think about picking, which I've learned over the over time, right? It, and I wrote a blog post about this as well, um, but is really picking individuals who have tasted excellence, who have really worked hard to obtain things that they were not handed, that were not fed to them on a silver spoon, right? This is, these are folks who are, in my opinion, like veterans, these are uh, professional athletes, these are chefs, because if you know anything about any of these three industries, you have to work really hard to be excellent in that industry. And they might not have the entrepreneurial gene in them, but they have the, the gene in order to have the grit, to have the hustle. Um, and that's what I learned now. But when I started, I, I had no idea, right? And I often like, my anti-portfolio is full of founders that have never, like were first-time founders and had never built a business previously. They had great excellence in other parts of their life, but I just, I couldn't see why this was like, this, this startup fit like a glove for them, right? Um, but they willed things into existence. And some of the best, now that I realize, um, I, I, we, we have so much of this fundraising phenomenon now that the best founders, I realize, they will will their round into existence. They'll be like, hey, you know, I'm raising $2 million, whatever, pre-seed, seed, whatever the numbers are these days. Um, but instead of going like, hey, in, instead of going like, um, if you invest, we will do these things, right? If you invest, we'll hire an executive who will help us with like go-to-market strategy and all these things. They'll be like, hey, I don't really care if you, like, they don't say this, but like, they'll give the notion off. Like, it almost doesn't matter if you invest or not, because within 12 months, I will make sure this happens. I don't need your money as a prerequisite for me to hit these milestones. I'm actively moving towards these milestones already. And one of the small signs of discovering like great founders is, at least for me, right? Um, could be contrarian, could be debatable, um, is if the founders have stalled operations and growth of their business for the sake of fundraising. Like, I don't think, even though fundraising is a full-time job and that's why like being a founder is very stressful, I don't think it should be an excuse for you to stall your business. Um, 
and I think you should always be selling, you should always be acquiring customers. And oftentimes when I talk to founders who are like fundraising and not actually building the business, or there's no one else on their team who's like full-time building the business and making sure it grows, even when the founder or the CEO is fundraising, um, that's usually like a tell of they're, they're raising money for means to an end. Um, and they're not actually dedicated towards the business and they might, they're not scrappy enough to think about different ways they can make sure the business works out, even if they don't raise X amount of money. Yeah, in a game of looking for ex exceptionalities, I wonder if finding commonalities is an exercise in futility, and we should just accept that every startup is different, and every founder will have a different makeup. I wanted totally. to ask: Is most this being said, a lot of first-time founders will not have access to a warm intro to you. A lot of investors, and I would say the majority, I don't have a figure in mind, but I would say 95% plus, rely on warm intros for most of their deal flow. Is that, right. do you have a different strategy? Are you open to cold intros? And then do you go looking for founders and have outbound deal flow as well? That's a great two-part question. Um, I'll answer the second one first. I do do outbound. Some of my best deals that I've seen that have put capital behind um, are, are folks that I just discovered on Twitter, Product Hunt. Uh, I found a couple on Kickstarter that I actually kind of liked. Um, and not to like name any names and put anyone on the spot. Um, it's I, I The exercise of going outbound is really is good because every investor has like rough thesis they pitch to LPs, but no one, like sometimes it's hard even for an investor going back to like picking exceptionality. No one really knows what that actually looks like. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes exceptionality is just luck. Right. Uh, but I, th I think every investor should have some sort of founder or company persona in mind when they're looking at, they should have some kind of framework, some kind of guideline as are that motivates like maybe like 70% of their decision making, but leaving themselves op themselves open to like 30% of, of new information, so to speak, right? And practicing the outbound is important for honing what that guideline, that rubric, that framework looks like. Because as long as you're getting inbound, there's a there's a selectivity bias, right? You have an availability bias of like you only see deals where people are reaching out to you. For me, I'm not as big as like the Mark Andreessen's or the Sarah Tavels or the folks of the in the world. So I am getting a, a subset of of the deals in which they get, right? Um, and if you only focus on inbound, especially if you want to build like a generational firm or like you want to like be an investor for the long term, um, you're getting a very biased sample size. And you're not even getting a bias sample size in the sense of like, especially when you start off, right? You're not getting a bias sample size of the top 25%. You're getting a bias sample size of probably the bottom 50% um, or maybe like the middle 80% or so, right? Um, but that doesn't give you an idea of what exceptional truly looks like. And I think practicing that outbound muscle is really important. Um, that was your second question. I forgot your first question. Um, can you run me? Yeah, it's just, what is your strategy of outbound versus inbound? Um... The first question was more of a comment. Cold, cold uh, emails. Um, so, uh, so yes, my strategy for outbound is like you have certain things you look for out there, right? Um, you like there something I did when I started off in venture, which uh, I don't. I'm gonna be honest, I don't do as much now. When I was a student in Berkeley, I was like, hey, you know what? 
everyone's like a hustler in Berkeley. Everyone's an early adopter in Berkeley. Everyone loves trying new things out. I would just treat my friends out to like a boba, like a pearl milk tea or like a meal for every introduction they gave me. So what I do is like, I would meet with them on a bi-weekly basis for folks that I knew were early adopters. These were like five to seven folks that friends that I knew that were like, just love trying new things out. And I would just treat them out to a meal every time they sent me three to five startups. They just like loved they don't have to know the founders, right? They introduced me to the founders even better, but I just needed to know like what were like really interesting things they were trying out that they absolutely love and they still kept on, on the app screen and their phone, right? I just needed to know what was still on the home screen of their phone. Um, and so I got a lot of like, I wouldn't call it deal flow necessarily, but I got a lot of insight into like what consumer products are sticky and what are the signs of a sticky consumer product uh, from my friends who just love trying new things out. Um, and I got a lot of deal flow there. And I like, you know, it's it's a fairly small sum of number. Like, you know, every two weeks, I'd probably expense, like, I'd probably like spend about give or take a hundred bucks. So it wasn't even that bad, right? Um, but the hundred bucks was well worth the deal flow in which I got as a subsequence of that. Um, your first question was about cold emails and warm intros and all that kind of stuff. Um, I'm a strong believer in cold emails. Um, yes, there's a there's a thought like process of like you have to get a warm intro because if you can't find a way to me or to any investor um you don't know how to find your way to a cio or a cxo or a cmo of a company in which you need to sell to um i think this is more so true for enterprise sales or like enterprise products or legacy products um it's less so true for a consumer like you're not trying to weasel your way into like an inbox per se or any particular person's inbox, but you're building a persona and targeting that persona at, at a large scale, right? Um, that said, that is also the reason why I think the venture industry, both in being invested and also investors being in the industry, is a fairly nepotistic industry um, in the sense that it, you're only surrounded by folks who are within like first, second, maybe even third degree connections, but no further than that, right? I love cold emails because I realize that I am not the smartest person in the world. I'm not the 0.01 person percent VC as of now, at least in the world. And I realize my thoughts are subject to change. And I'm willing to have those ideas changed by think by people outside of my immediate network. Um, that said, while I love cold emails, there is an art form to, you know, sending cold emails. And I've actually written about this on my blog. And if you go to my blog, in the uh, like in the contact page where you can reach out to me, I actually share exactly what quote unquote, is my cold email template, uh, which I actually think not only works for me, but works for like so many other investors or anyone else you want to reach out to out there, right? Um, and I prefer to have emails, cold emails sent to me in that format. Um, but th that said, I am open to cold emails. Let's talk about diligence and let's frame it in the sense of structure versus intuition. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about how much do you rely on structure and how much do you rely on intuition? And we can focus on founders or we can focus on the product or their sales strategy. Um, feel free to focus on whatever you'd prefer. Yeah. Um, depending on the stage in which you invest in. So I, I spend most of my time in pre-seed and pre-pre-seed. Like I try to go, I try to be like first check writer and like early, early on. Um, because of that, structure matters slightly less. Um, that said, if you're a series A investor, like there are certain metrics that you just have to hit. Like, you know, if, if someone's hit like, let's say the series B or series C and they're still like pre-revenue, that's probably not a good sign. Obviously, depending on the product, like biotech and frontier tech, they differ 
uh, like in various wavelengths. But if you're a consumer product or you're an enterprise like SaaS product and you have no revenue by the Series B, that kind of sucks. Like I don't I don't think folks should get funded. And admittedly, some folks have gotten funded over the past like two years be because of the FOMO and all that kind of stuff, right? Um, so having some structure to know like what is the what is not what are the non-negotiables? I think is really important. Right. Um, that said, don't lock yourself in. Like it's very similar if you're on like, let's say the dating market, like don't be like, this is my ideal type and I won't settle for anyone less than my ideal type. And like, you just arbitrarily made up this ideal type kind of thing. Right. Um, but you should have like some things are non-negotiables. Right. Um, and, and, and that could be certain metrics that could be like, you know, if you're at the series a, you need at least like tens of thousands of users. That could mean that, um, if you're a consumer product by the series a, or maybe in the seed stage, right. Um, you need uh, folks, your power users need to be using your product at least four, three to four days out of every seven days of the week, right? And so having those rough sets of benchmarks help better inform you for like decision-making. But that said, like, you know, a venture firm or like any angel investor or whatever it is, right? You have a limited like fund size, so to speak. An angel investor has a smaller fund size than a, a, like a VC does. Um, and because of that, you, can, you can't say yes to every single deal, right? And so- after you, in your mind, have built this model to curate the top quartile, maybe the top decile of startups out there, that's when you rely on intuition, right? I, I don't think you should start off with intuition. You start off with structure and then um, you end on institution because out of the three amazing startups you're talking to, maybe you only have room in your portfolio for one more this year or maybe one more this quarter or whatnot, right? And that's when you use your intuition to tell you like, is this a long-term marriage that you would like to jump in? And even as an investor, I think about like, can I learn a lot from the founder as well? Obviously, I'll share a lot with the founder and like from my expertise, but can I also learn a lot from the founder as well? Um, so that's how I think about like intuition versus structure. But I think some structure is important to set the stage. So then sometimes you don't know what intuition is going to tell you. Thanks for that answer. And I completely agree with that. This has been a lot of fun, David. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast and we'll have to do a part two soon. I'll have to do a part two. Reach out. I apologize for my uh, for my internet, but hopefully we got some good tidbits and I'm happy to do another one. Thanks for having me.